I'm Daniel Bass, manager of the South Asia program at Cornell University. And I'm Shravin Senevaratner, graduate student in architecture at Cornell and student worker at South Asia program. You're listening to the Next Monsoon podcast, where we examine how art and culture can help us navigate the uncertain future. This podcast is part of a bigger project in the South Asia program at Cornell University. We'll be interviewing scholars from around the world to help us understand how people and artists face climate change. In this episode, we're navigating matters of political conflicts, social movements, decolonizing methods, and research ethics through fieldwork in Pakistan. Ahsan Kamal is a lecturer at the National Institute of Pakistan Studies at the KD Azam University, Islamabad, Pakistan. He works with activists and communities on issues of land and water commons in Pakistan. His dissertation in sociology from the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, Saving Sindhu, in this enclosure and river defense in Pakistan, won their 2020 SS Pirzada Dissertation Prize on Pakistan. He recently co-wrote a book chapter called Research as Action and Performance, Learning with Activists in Resource Conflicts. Welcome, Hassan. It's great to have you on the podcast today. Thank you, Daniel and Shavin. It's really lovely to have the opportunity to have this conversation. I'm looking forward to it. What's your first thought about the word monsoon? Uh, my first thought is uh, it's 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 the season of joy. Growing up uh, in Pakistan, monsoon is always, you know, at the end of a grueling summer. It's a time when, as kids, we would just go out and run and just play in the rain. Uh, and then, of course, there's like a whole sort of a cultural thing of, associated with it. It's a mm-hmm. season of longing. So there's a lot of these positive feelings I grew up with. However, recently, given mm-hmm. everything that's going on with climate change and disaster, there's definitely a sort of a darker under note to that seasonal shift these days. You know, that's kind of like part of the experience now, unfortunately. So what inspired you to be part of this project on the next monsoon? Yeah, so just kind of like experiencing what's uh, going on with uh, floods and the kind of work I do with uh, river activists and uh, issues of land and water commons in Pakistan. It's always uh, interesting to see how people in South Asia and outside of South Asia who are concerned about these things are approaching these questions and what kind of uh, learning uh, we can have from each other. So when uh, I had an interaction with Iftikhar Dadi, he was familiar with my work. Uh, I was a bit concerned that, you know, my work doesn't centrally focus uh, focus on uh, cultural production as such, or or in a way I interpret cultural production very differently from, uh, let's say, Iftikhar's work or some of the other people. So, uh, so it just felt like a great opportunity mm-hmm. to sort of push myself out of my comfort zone in, in this kind of academic work. So how do you think about cultural lenses on climate change can provide a different understanding than a scientific analysis? Yeah, that's a, obviously that's a big question. So for me, I don't necessarily focus directly on, we can think of artists like, you know, artists who are displaying their art in a, in a gallery or exhibition. But it's more about how certain individuals who are mm-hmm. witnessing these changes uh, and are working with communities that are facing uh, these conflicts, how are they sort of both witnessing and um, organizing their thoughts, developing new concepts, what kind of conversations that they're having, what kind of metaphors they're using to describe this new reality. So what I see is that the response to what I would call the, for instance, the death of the river and river imagined more holistically, not just 
uh, as something that flows in a channel, but you know, it's connected to the rain and it's connected to the overflows and how do changes and shifts now appear in this discourse, particularly among activists who are working with communities and you know, some of the activists that are insiders of the, those communities. So how are they uh, talking about these things, what metaphors they're using, what kind of poetry and they're producing and so on and so forth. So building on that, how would you say your research and teaching and activism frame your understanding of climate change? So the first thing in terms of the combination of teaching, researching and activism is that you, you realize that there are, there are these borders that are created between these separate domains. There's a large recognition now in academia that activists and communities are also knowledge producers. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, how that knowledge travels uh, from these communities, from these mm -hmm. activist conversations to ac academia. And then within academia, uh, the boundaries created between different disciplines prevent sort of deep conversations and interaction of uh, these different modes of thinking about things. So the and the collaboration is very different from academic collaborations. Mm -hmm. uh, it has its own timeline. Things happen quickly. Sometimes things move very, very slowly. Academic calendars and productions are very different. Mm -hmm. So when you kind of move away from these borders just for purely pragmatic reasons, then you also epistemologically move away from dichotomies. Like you, you, you just have to have some fluidity and move between these different modes of operation. It makes it slightly difficult as well. So for instance, in my work, I have to read what the engineers are writing about a dam or what the lawyers are saying about the legal policy and what the <laughs> communities are doing. It's difficult to do unless there are a lot of people who are so who have some more ex expertise in these things and you can sit with them and talk to them and have some sort of a conversation uh, in these different realms and domains. Uh, but I think overall, it really helps you expand the way you look at these problems. Building on that, you got your graduate training in the United States. You're now teaching in Pakistan. Have you found that border between activism and academia different in those two settings? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a very interesting question, but the answer is definitely yes. I, I think I teach at a public university in, uh, in Pakistan. It comes with a whole set of disadvantages in terms of resources and, you know, like just the investment. And we, we all know about the whole the way uh, governments are defunding education and yeah. all sorts of things. But at the same time, I feel that if you find that sort of space where you can uh, engage critically and politically, then there's much more readiness among scholars based here in, in my university and generally mm -hmm. my experience in the global south. They're, they're closer to these act, uh, activists and communities and resistance in some sense. I'm not saying that no one is able to do that in the U.S., but personally, I felt outside of some very specific issues, there's a huge distance between uh, the, the modern elite research university and what the activists and communities are doing, or at least their relationship is more mediated through like, you know, particular forms of knowledge production in the academy. Mm -hmm. um, it's in my experience, there's more flexibility in the in universities, public universities in the global south. Although again, there are huge disadvantages as well. So more about your research and um, what you do. In your research on riverine activism and water politics in Pakistan, 
What has been the relationship that you've seen between the fishers, landowners, activists, and politicians? Right. So, so I, I think it's interesting to think about the relationship of uh, these uh, so fishers and traditional irrigators let's, and the landless groups that I have uh, worked with. Mm-hmm. And relationship with politicians in South Asia, generally by politician, we mean someone who is a party representative, like who mm-hmm. participates in mainstream electoral politics. Okay. And their relationship with politicians is kind of interesting. I mean, these politicians often coming from elite backgrounds, they're either landed or, you know, uh, capitalists. Mm-hmm. Their interaction is uh, around politics or clientelism. Mm-hmm. Uh, the politicians are obviously more visible and present when it's election season. In my experience, a lot of time, what they, what these communities want, which is to protect their land, their water commons, their forest commons, the politicians don't have the capacity to address those things. The politicians are good for, you know, maybe building a road or investing in a, like a local school. Uh, mm-hmm. There's very few political parties and they're not really powerful enough, at least in Pakistan, to sort of take on this whole ideology of development that is creating this dispossession of the people. Uh, so if, but if you move away from politicians, then there's a lot of politics. Okay. There's a lot of sort of self-organizing. There's a mm-hmm. lot of social movement activism. And there are sort of indirect channels through which these movements can influence politicians. We need to think about the influence of uh, these uh, organized fishers and landless activists is that they are really transforming the discourse around nationalism. And when I say nationalism in South Asia, mm-hmm. we mean ethno-linguistic nationalism, movements for uh, local autonomy. And, you know, India does has done much better in terms of uh, these uh, recognizing different languages and, mm-hmm. you know, uh, giving some power by uh, dividing larger provinces to smaller sort of uh, smaller ethno-linguistic groups. Uh, but in Pakistan, the, the tendency is to centralize that state power. So a lot of time, what these fishers and traditional irrigators do, that when they mobilize, their discourse is very much about uh, we are sovereign and we are, uh, this is our land, this is our territory that you are taking away from us uh, through these large-scale development projects. And they this, this narrative very quickly latches on to and often transforms the larger ethno-nationalist movements that might be uh, asking for regional autonomy, that might Mm -hmm. be demanding uh, distribution of power in the federation. So, and that can then influence uh, electoral politics. Mainstream politicians are then forced to include these demands of communities around their right over land, their right over the river, over the forest, and include that in this high politics conversation you had mentioned the land commons, water commons, forest commons. And I was wondering for our listeners, if you could explain more what that idea of the commons means to you. Yeah, so 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 for me, generally, it's useful to think about the commons in the distinction between inner commons and outer commons as a distinction that in South Asia, when over the long process of enclosure and introduction of private property regimes, introduced by the British, there's certain pieces of land within a village territory that in Pakistan we normally call Shamilat. Uh, this, was, this was a system that predated the British, uh, but basically in a village, some people have land ownership to private plots, 
mm-hmm. then they have some common land to which they have access, for instance, to gather wood or to as a pasture land for their uh, animals. Uh, so, so there is that sort of inner common that, but it's limited to that village community. Um, so a lot of these processes, what happens is if there's a big development project that requires land acquisition by the state, the state only pays for uh, the privately held land. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you're a landless and you had access to the commons, you are completely displaced. And mm-hmm. for e- even if you are a, a landowner, mm-hmm. you're only compensated for the land that you have a title to, not for the access to the commons. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of like one. Uh, but the other is the outer commons, which uh, in, in that sort of way of thinking about how Europeans have transformed by colonizing this land, the outer commons can refer to the territory that is not part of a village community. Like it's not entire, it's not just the privilege of a village community member to access, but these could be the forests between different villages, the pastoral lands or large area, right? So these outer commons were also very central to the political economy and the disposition is at that level as well. Much of your research has been on communities along the Indus River and I was wondering how are the issues that face them, how are those similar to communities along other rivers in Pakistan or elsewhere in South Asia? Oh, that's a fascinating question. Obviously, uh, as you guys are well familiar with this South Asian mm-hmm. problem, is that you can't hop over the border and do that sort of work in India. It's yeah. just like alternate. There's a whole sort of Indus Water Treaty with people uh, familiar with South Asia would know about. Mm-hmm. And the distribution of rivers, uh, the division of uh, these waters is like a silly notion <laughs> between these two nation states. But then they're among other silly notions that these two countries, the yeah. <laughs> of South Asia, have. this one is one of, mm-hmm. uh, it's really right up there. Um, but just to answer your question, so I have a way to think about the Indus River. One of the thing is that Indus is, it has that sort of significance, right? Mm-hmm. It's both symbolically and just materially the largest, most significant river. The first large scale project in the Indus River was the Sakhar Viraj in 1930s. And the uh, the barrage and canal colonization of the other rivers of the Indus Valley that began in the 1850s. So you know it's mm-hmm. like literally like uh, 80 years of development in other parts, and finally getting to the Indus River. It's it's something that I haven't like really thought through, but it's kind of like really interesting that Punjab, being and central Punjab in particular, around these other rivers is like overdeveloped for a longer period of time Mm -hmm. with canal colonization. And as scholars have mentioned that this canal colonization wasn't only an infrastructure project, it was a social re-engineering project as well. So a lot of the largest towns in central Punjab did not exist before canal colonization. Uh Pakistan's second biggest town, Festival, which has been called the Manchester of (laughs) of South Asia at some level, at some point, because it produces a lot of cotton. Mm -hmm. It did not exist. It did not have that sort of strength. Mm -hmm. So one has to sort of think about that there is a deep socio-ecological transformation that happened in parts of these Mm -hmm. central Punjab. And ideas about river defense uh, perhaps were influenced by this long-term transformation and politics that were shaping here as compared to the Indus 
where this death and destruction and the flows are sort of emerging at a time when our awareness of the ecological harm of this project is also increasing. Mm-hmm. Our awareness of the climate change is also increasing. The dynamic outside of the Indus Basin are different. Generally, these are seasonal rivers. Mm. Uh, um, and so, uh, there, and in particularly in Balochistan, they're also implicated in a very violent conflict between the Pakistani military and some Baloch nationalist groups. Uh, for the military, they're the separatist terrorist group. For all of the, a lot of Baloch, they are the uh, sort of freedom fighters and liberators. Mm-hmm. So that conflict is there. So politics of the river is kind of, in a way, is just like hidden. I mean, it's there. Communities yeah. are mobilizing. But it's kind of hidden in that sort of big conflict and theater of war and all that that's happening. You talked about riverine communities um, addressing or having an awareness with climate change. I was wondering if you could share more examples of how these communities are facing the growing climate crisis and how are their reactions different from the bigger state? Right. So it's a very sort of good example or way to think about this is to look at the long history of mobilization of groups like Pakistan Fisher Folk Forum and the Sindhu Vichautarla and what they have been doing and comparing it to this recent project, uh, the Living Indus project that has become sort of like the centerpiece of the Pakistani governments uh, after the 2022 floods. It's, it's one of the projects that the government is promoting as addressing Pakistan's climate change problems, climate mm-hmm. adaptation problems. But there's a distinction, there's a difference between how these communities mobilize and this mainstream project of living in this. And the the biggest difference, as I was speaking earlier, as well mm-hmm. is that the communities embed their demands in ideas of uh, uh, regional autonomy and sovereignty and control over their own resources and to question the whole sort of system that takes away these resources from them. So that's one. The second thing is that a lot of the fishers and traditional aggregates are very much against the large infrastructure development, particularly dams and canal irrigation, like huge investments in that Mm -hmm. system. And uh, if you ask any hydrologist and environmentalist uh, worth asking, (laughs) then they will tell you that this long, uh, long term destruction of the Pakistani ecological system is largely attributable to these large infrastructure projects. Mm. So the communities are very clear on that. They want alternatives. They say that they are they are traditional practices. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, we need to rethink how these pr- traditional practices can be adapted in this modern sort of economy in some ways, but they're very clear on how to do it. On the other hand, if you look at the living in this document, while it speaks a lot of you know, interesting, there's a lot of interesting talk about river health and ecology. At the same time, it is insisting on sort of continuing and even expanding that infrastructure project. And there is no sort of real recognition of uh, the the claim of the local groups and communities on their own resources. So what ends up happening is that it will become like this top-down, heavy-handed infrastructure development project. And from historic experience uh, of large projects of climate-related issues in Pakistan, we see, as we call it here, it's all about the teka. Teka is like the contract, (laughs) right? So whenever there's a contract to be had, whenever there's a cement to be poured into a problem, you will find the government and the contractors and everyone will be happy (laughs) there. 
But if it's about restoration of the water and the river and the, you know, the aquatic life and all sorts of things, uh, they're going to stay away from this. How do you frame and conduct your academic research in a way that facilitates agency and advocacy among some of the activist communities that you work with? As privileged knowledge producers and academics uh, are part of that knowledge production system, and again, you, the closer you are to the the elite institution, the global north, the more power you have in terms of, right? So even for me, even if I'm working in a uh, university in Pakistan, public university in Pakistan, having had a degree from the U.S. And again, the fact that I'm in this podcast, having networks, and you know, like I have more voice than more agency. So first of all, to just acknowledge that we have this power. And if we are not really uh, careful, then we will end up sort of representing uh, these communities and what they're trying to do mm-hmm. with our own sort of frames and our own understanding. One is just the analytical representation of reality, right? Like mm-hmm. as scholars, we look at reality, we represent it with our theories and sort of uh, simplify, reify it. And then there's a political representation, which is mm-hmm. where communities or anyone can stake claims that this is our demand based on this, 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 this knowledge. And so it's very sort of uh, important for researchers like myself to really understand these the dual problem of representation. And, you know, so to give uh, or to uh, not subsume the agency for self-representation or articulation of their own problems in their own idioms to these communities, uh, one easy way to do it is to just use our own sort of concerns of high theory, and not listen to what they're saying and what mm-hmm. concepts that they're using and how they're imagining the world and the problems and they're trying to represent. So I, so so that's easier said than done in practice. <laughs> I mean, again, within academia, there are like a lot of like the easiest thing to do is to cite X, Y, Z and say, okay, look, I'm being careful. Like yeah. just, it's, it's a way to just use someone else's authority to lessen the burden on you. But <laughs> the way I would approach this is to have like some commitment. Are you committed to this problem? Are you really concerned about that your act by default is designed to subsume various an agency because of the history of how knowledge production is implicated yeah. in imperial colonial pro- processes, right? Yeah. No, I ask because this is something I've struggled with for 20 some years. Did my PhD research with uh, Tamil tea plantation workers in Sri Lanka and issues of ethnic and political organizing and this issue of like, I had a voice and access to power and could have people in quarters of power here, you know, and that was good. But also, what am I giving back? Yeah. And also, I think that just thinking and ethically as a question, like, so, you know, when we produce knowledge, as if I write or present a paper, I have like a lot of fears who will listen to what I'm saying and they will point out flaws and they will <laughs> hold me accountable. Basically. Whether they do it nicely or, you know, in the usual way that academics do it by taking someone down, <laughs> they will, this is like an accountability mechanism. They're saying, look, what you're trying to say, there's a lot of people who are thinking about this. So come on, yeah. just listen to all of these people. I think there's complete lack of that accountability to community that mm. we're researching. When I say that, some people do it and they do it very, very well. Yeah. But there is no sort of institutional requirement for us to go and say, okay, let's, I'm writing about this community. Let me go and present this work in front of them and see what they say and try to modify what I'm saying. Some people will do it, but I think mm. there's some sort of a lack of this institutional accountability. Is there for you personally a framework so that you can follow by or to think about how you can advocate for them? I feel is very important is for me personally mm-hmm. is to 
have conversations with activists and like not just an interview with an activist or a simple sort of ethnographic kind of engagement. If we take them as knowledge producers that are not just community members, but have been forced to think about a lot of time activists just have conversations with each other. <laughs> and a lot of time it's just about concept X and concept Y. <laughs> and it's like, you're just like, there's so much conversation about the conversation of that concept. And like, you know, there's so many, it's, it just feels very much removed. But I think that that sort of same commitment does not exist in terms of conversations with these activists and recognizing them as flawed human beings and as having flaws, as all theories have flaws, mm -hmm. but as re our limitations, but recognizing this, that they have existential stake and they are not only facing the impact of these changes, but they're deeply concerned about how do we bring about a transformation. Bringing some things back to the world of academia, um, in what ways do you see feminist and critical theory intersecting with your research in Pakistan? So the exposure that I've had as someone who went to, let's say, the U.S. to study social sciences, and before that I was trained as a computer scientist and engineer, you know, <laughs> the story of South Asian <laughs> middle class, mobility, inspiration, and all that. Um, so I hardly read anything other than the Pakistani state, what they wanted me to read or what I would find, you know, outside of. So my exposure to critical theory was at first indirectly in conversations with people in Pakistan and, you know, yeah. again, some, some activists. Again, coming from Pakistan, where generally men are, you know, their views about Feminism, by and large, statistically, are quite—I uh, don't know—they're they're ridiculous, essentially. Yeah. You know, and so having grown up in this society and being socialized in that way, you know, I was obviously carrying some of those views deep inside. So it's so so conversation with uh, both uh, by reading books and in seminars and some wonderful activists and mm -hmm. some wonderful scholars has been really foundational in expanding my mind around these things. Mm -hmm. And for me personally, it really uh, shines a light on the limitations of my project. Like, you know, most of this, mm -hmm. I've been talking about communities and work. I don't know, maybe this is the thing, you can when you can sort of hold your uh, ear from this side, you don't have to hold it from this side. <laughs> um, and so for sometimes it feels like reading too much theory is like, you know, holding your sort of holding your ear the wrong way, uh, in the difficult way. I don't know if this is going to translate in the audio. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, but uh, so, so uh, it's, it's a barrier. The critical theory is very good, expansive, but it also creates limits. So I definitely tell students that you need to trust where you're coming from, your insights mm -hmm. about these things, take these ideas but think about where your ideas are i have uh, I'm exposure to this beautiful heritage of south asian culture and knowledge and uh these uh, these moments of resistance in poetry and verses mm -hmm. and so sometimes theory is great for expanding our mind also and critical and feminist theory are really something that you know that we, we need to take the basic lessons from there but sometimes these can also be really really just uh, they put limits in the way we think about these things yeah no, that is true. That is true. What do you think is at stake for the floodplains communities? Everything. It's as I say, it's existential. Before mm -hmm. the existential threat to the planet, the planet will survive. Even large sections of humanity will survive. But the floodplain communities—they're already—they've lost. 
they've mm-hmm. lost this slowed on this destruction that has been happening mm-hmm. i mean now we have scientific knowledge and these communities have every time i go i ask them when did it start when did this destruction start mm. they remember it ever since they were born you know when is lucky and this uh, and i I'm kind of means half sarcastically, but you know to uh, to migrate abroad to the global north. Like literally, yeah. the you know we are sinking, and the ship really is migration to the global north. Like there is a ship, and the Indus Valley that are designed as an extraction machine where rivers and all these lands are literally a machine to extract resources. And there's deep investments in these machines, these infrastructure. The it's it's the, one of the biggest reason for economic collapse in Pakistan is uh, because of the debt resurfacing that happens. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's very it's becoming very difficult. So communities and floodplains, it's really everything. They're, they're, what is at stake? It's everything. They're, they're losing yeah. everything. I'd say with that in mind, what is a sign of hope in the face of climate change in South Asia? So I will start with this hopelessness that I do experience. <laughs> I do think that when we think about next, there is a desire to look for hope. And I feel there is some sort of need to also not dwell in depression <laughs> but to think that this is the the, the 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 difficult thing here is as i was saying that the people who devise these things are then put in charge of creating projects like living mm-hmm. in this and that's where sort of it really really is depressing they are the ones who are going to solve this problem by doing more of the same so there is that and so and activism is premised on hope of trying to change things and i feel really hopeful when i sit with these activists and they're mobilizing and they're they're fighting these fights in in the face of this situation of hopelessness often and i don't know just people who are fighting this fight that that definitely gives me hope that's it for today's episode on the next month soon this is the last episode of season one of the Next Monsoon podcast. We will be returning next year with season two. We would like to give special thanks to Sam Lubowitz and Angelica Kramer at Cornell's Language Resource Center for their assistance with recording this podcast. Shivin Senvaratna not only co-hosts this podcast, but is also our editor. Funding for the podcast and the entire Next Monsoon project comes from the National Endowment for the Humanities. Please follow the South Asia program on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at SAPCornell. You've been listening to music by SAP Administrator Gloria Lemus-Chavez and her partner Brandon Kane. Make sure to check out more of their work in the show notes. The ideas and opinions expressed in this podcast do not reflect those of the National Endowment for the Humanities, Cornell's Office of the Vice Provost for International Affairs, or any other official entity of Cornell University. I'm Daniel Bass. And I'm Shavin Sinavratna. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned for new conversations and stories on the next monsoon.